It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 71 of Sports Day Plus. At 645, where are we at in society? Guys are paying a lot of money to nip it like Beckham. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with comedian and best-selling author David Nihill, head of his shows at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend, tonight through Saturday. And in mere seconds, the college football playoff hasn't even officially expanded yet. They're already talking about expanding it more. Good idea or move of desperation? I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Yes, the college football playoff is expanding to 12 teams for this upcoming season, but they're already talking about increasing that number by two or maybe even four. The meetings going on in the greater Dallas Fort Worth area over the last couple of days and yesterday. College football commissioners did discuss the possibility of growing the playoff field to 14 or 16 teams when the next contract goes into effect in 2026. For the next two years, that expanded playoff will include 12 teams, four first-round buys for those top four seeds, which do need to be conference champions, with seeds five through eight getting a home game in that very first round. And while all the details of these conversations amongst the leaders of college football aren't totally known, this much is known. That the idea of 14 to 16 teams is out there, which by the way, you could have predicted as soon as they said 12 teams, that 16 would be inevitable within, I don't know, at least five years, maybe sooner. And it does look like it is going to be sooner. But here's the kicker here. There's also discussions of the idea that the Big Ten and SEC each get four guaranteed slots in a 14 or 16 team playoff. Who do you think is negotiating that one right now? Which conferences do you think are insisting that the Big Ten and SEC get four guaranteed spots in a college football playoff? Yeah, that would be the Big Ten and the SEC who are seeing just how far they can push things because they have all the power right now. It's not a coincidence that the news was released a couple weeks ago that the Big Ten and SEC were meeting on their own to discuss the future of college sports and college football. And as many have predicted, myself included, it's only a matter of time before they do create a sort of super conference or top tier of the sport of college football. We'll see if the other sports follow suit. My guess is that those other sports, basketball included, by the way, does remain a part of the NCAA or if the NCAA is disbanded, whatever replaces the NCAA in overlooking college athletics. So 14 or 16 teams, Big Ten and SEC, each get four automatic bids each year, regardless of if that fourth team is ranked, I don't know, 18, 20, much likely for an SEC school than a Big Ten school, but I also might be biased about that. And this is just another step in the direction of these two conferences breaking away altogether. And maybe they add something like relegation to those other schools, to those 
Big 12 schools, ACC schools, what's left of the Pac-12, the group of five schools that want to compete for a national championship in football, you'll have the ability to do so in that second tier of college football. And one other thing we need to keep an eye on here with regards to this story is what is happening between Florida State and the ACC right now. Ongoing lawsuits where the Florida State side of things is essentially trying to argue that the ironclad contract that was signed several years ago on behalf of Florida State, not by Florida State officials, mind you, was not done so in as good of faith as was promised at the time. So lawyers on both sides, really all sides of things, are trying to find that out or the inability for Florida State to get out if you're the ACC. Or if you're going to get out and Florida State's going to take their TV revenue with them to force them to pay a certain amount in doing so. But if Florida State can find that out from the ACC... It's just going to be another step for the SEC and Big Ten forming the College Football Super Conference. We need to come up with a better name for that. I hate Super Conference. These are two conferences here. Let's come up with the league. College Football League? Ah, CFL. Already taken by the Canadian Football League. Try again. The College Football Association, the CFA? That doesn't roll off the tongue. But yes, if Florida State gets out of that ACC deal, they will bolt immediately. I'd be shocked if they didn't end up in the SEC. You will likely see Clemson try to leave, North Carolina, Miami. It really just depends on whether those major conferences want any of these schools. Florida State has value. I think Clemson has value. Although Dabo is trying really hard to make them irrelevant on the national scene. North Carolina has value for a variety of reasons, but are they consistently good enough in football? Recently, they've been better, and it's worth the conversation. Heck, they've been better than South Carolina, I'd think. Number of SEC and Big Ten schools that they've been better than, so that would be a positive addition. Miami? Do we really want to mess with Miami's mess? Just how flagrant they've been throughout this NIL process? and making no secret about how they're going about business, I don't fault them. They realize that the NCAA has no teeth, but I don't know. Miami's a wild card here. Maybe we keep the wild card on the sideline or let them try to dominate that lower level. And if the idea of relegation does come to fruition, maybe they get that chance at some point to compete with the big boys. But if you're Texas and Oklahoma... Heck, the Pac-12 schools that are about to be members of the Big Ten, you are in a great position right now. Because the groups that you're a part of, they have all the power. As evidenced by the fact that we were hearing conversations about the Big Ten and SEC each getting four automatic qualifiers for an expanded college football playoff. It'd be a terrible idea for an expanded playoff, by the way. I don't think there's any doubt that the SEC and Big Ten would get four schools in most years. If we're talking about the top 16 teams, that's not guaranteed, though. And that's where these schools, if they're the ones suggesting the four automatic bids for each conference, which, again, I would be shocked if that weren't the case. They understand that, but they also want to get their guaranteed money because they know that there is plenty more on the horizon if they completely eliminate these other conferences and schools altogether. They don't need them. These other schools need the Big Ten and the SEC. 
It's just the reality of things. On the subject of college football, before we get to the break here, everybody knows by now that the EA Sports College football game is coming back this summer. Very excited about that. In the Elling household, been playing a lot of FIFA for the last couple of years. Played a little bit of Madden. Madden's not the same as the college football game, though. I will be purchasing that college football game, and I'm sure my son and I will have a Longhorn football dynasty at some point in the not-too-distant future. Well, we know what EA Sports is offering players to opt into the game, to have their name, image, and likeness as part of the latest iteration, the return of EA Sports College Football. Now, guys have gone on record in the last six months since the announcement was made that the game is coming back for certain that, hey, I'll do it for free. I just want to be in the game. Well, EA Sports is doing you one better to those guys. Each player is being offered at least $600 in a copy of the game. Could probably stand to make more there, but I think that's a very fair offer. And there will be guys, by the way, who will serve as ambassadors for the game too. So they stand to make a lot more money. Don't be surprised to see a Quinn Ewers on a cover. Maybe they go regional covers. Quinn Ewers ends up on a cover. Probably going to be a lot of different quarterbacks. Maybe Carson Beck is on a cover. Hopefully they vary things a little bit and we get guys from other positions as well. But there will be guys serving as that cover model. Hopefully we don't get the curse of the Madden cover on the college football video game, especially if a Texas player is there too. All right, that is it for the sports talk for the time being. Coming up, it is a two-segment conversation with comedian David Nihill, head of his shows at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. David Nyhill is a stand-up comedian, best-selling author, and speaking coach. You can find out more about all of these things at his website, davidnyhill.com, N-I-H-I-L-L. The book is called Do You Talk Funny? Seven Comedy Habits to Become a Better and Funnier Public Speaker. On the stand-up front, you can actually catch him here in town this weekend, starting tonight at Cap City Comedy Club, a show at 8 tonight, two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday. Go to capcitycomedy.com to snag those tickets. David, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, and I have to admit, as somebody who talks to a lot of comedians and also has a podcast devoted in part to books... I was very curious when I saw your name pop up for Cap City Comedy Club several weeks back. You're bringing your shelf help tour to Austin here at the end of the week. And as it is advertised, it's comedy and book reading recommendations, which I didn't know those two things went hand in hand. But here we are, and you're touring across the country right now doing so. So for people listening right now, what can they expect if they come to Cap City Comedy Club Thursday, Friday, or even Saturday to check out your show? Yeah, it's a great question. I think they could expect to be disappointed. They'll be like, nobody should have tried to combine book (laughs) recommendations and comedy. And, you know, the proof is really seeing it firsthand. And you're like, well, well, he tried. I don't know if I should have paid to witness the train wreck of him trying to cram in as many book recommendations as humanly possible. 
but just to confirm the show does exist. So yeah, very low expectations. I don't think any Irish person has ever tried to really hype up something apart from Conor McGregor, and that didn't really end well <laughs> at the end of it all. So I think as a country, we're still emotionally scarred from any form of promotion or going, it'll be good. So yeah, I would assume it'll be terrible. You, if you're into books, it could be good. Uh, my favorite part of the show is when I started off by going, uh, now you know the show is about books and there is an audible groan and look at confusion from everybody who had no idea that it was about books. So it's uh, it, it's been a funny one, but it's it's one where I was like, well, if you let me just talking to my friends or talking to anybody or having a general conversation with someone I just met about something that makes me laugh or I think is funny, random or interesting, it would always come back to books. So that's kind of what the show is born out of. So is it essentially a 60-minute set that is based around some of your favorite books over time? Is that what it comes down to then? Or is it you doing comedy and at the end you're like, hey, here's some book recommendations? No, yeah, I, I wish I had a set that was that logical, structured, and made coherent sense. And I'm like, it'll be 60 minutes and I've worked hard on this show. But it's more Irish style where I just loosely waffle and wander. And hopefully that, that uh, tangent of stories misdirects and general confusion lends itself to stumbling through a whole bunch of books that I've read over time that influenced my life or stories that happened to me in, in some way, shape or form along the way. So it's kind of all these mad moments that have happened to me that are, they're all true and that are all linked to generally reading a certain book that opened a rabbit hole to a bunch of other books and a bunch of other books. And yeah, how long that show tends to be is generally linked to how excited I am in a particular moment of time and how many of them pop into my head with a loose general structure. But yeah, if I, if I had brains, I'd sit down and write a show, but I'm dyslexic. So I came to books a little bit late in life. And this is a, a reflection of that in the planning process as well. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not me just rattling off a list at the end, but it is me linking them throughout as much as possible. So you weren't a reader as a kid then, if you were dyslexic, at what point did you find a love for books? And was there one particular book that made you fall in love with reading? Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember going on holiday with this English girl and it was in, I was backpacking around Australia and she somehow had won some competition and a bunch of money. It was like, do you want to come to Fiji? I know you have no money. I'll pay for the flight. And I was like, well, who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> I am off to Fiji. And when she was, we'd be just sitting there and I would just sit at the beach and I'd be like, the beach is just for sitting. That's how beaches work. I might have a swim. I'll just sit here. But for her, it was for reading. And we were sat in Fiji and she was teaching herself Spanish. And I'm like, at what point do you plan on speaking Spanish to Fijians? Like what? This <laughs> makes no logical sense whatsoever. But her mind was always like 10 steps ahead. And over making fun of me for about a whole month, she gave me a book, and if I remember correctly, it was Bill Bryson. It was a brief history of almost everything. Mm. Uh, and that just sent me down a rabbit hole of, of swapping that book with people for other books as I was traveling around. And back in those days, you'd be in a hostel, and they'd have like a library exchange, and one book became another and another, and it got completely out of control. And then over time, I realized, well, geez, if I don't have access to mentors, I should view books as mentors because it's it's basically – this, some of the smartest people you can ever find their most condensed thoughts and opinions as reviewed and unscrupulously edited by a professional editor to make the largest amount of sense in the shortest amount of words possible. And I went, well, surely that's, that's a better source, source than anything else I could have. So yeah, whenever I'm looking for information these days, I try and tend to go to a book rather than the comment section on the internet, which is pretty much the polar opposite of a book. Asking somebody who loves to read what their favorite book is can be a little bit of a Sophie's Choice question, but do you have that top tier of books that you herald above the others? Because I certainly have those myself, everything from 
Brave New World to a book written by uh, chess champion Gary Kasparov. And uh, there are a couple of others in that category for me. So for you, are there books that qualify as such? Yeah, there's. I think that the ones I tend to love the most are the ones that have a wild story that is somewhat inspirational, achievable, or just completely bonkers that I had never heard. And I think the two that tick the box the most on that is one called The Man Who Tried to Save the World, the Fred Cunney Mystery, mm. about a Texan, uh, if I remember correctly, and another one called The Fish That Ate the Whale, uh, which is the story of Sam the Banana Man Zamori. And they are just two, I won't, don't want to give anything away for people who are like, oh, what's that about? Just read them and both of them will blow your mind. Interesting. So your start in stand-up comedy uh, came as a result of you really trying to challenge yourself. And I've got a ton of respect for that. You were afraid of public speaking and you said, as a result of trying to get over this, I'm going to try my hand at stand-up comedy. How long ago was this? Yeah, that was possibly the worst plan I ever had. So appreciate your kind words, but I would not encourage anyone else <laughs> to take the same steps. Uh, be like, I'm afraid of sharks. Well, I'm going to go sit on one's back and see what they do to me. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that might not end well. So it, sadly, this was a bit similar, but it was... It was a good few years back now, more than I can actually remember, but maybe 12 or 13 years ago. And it was as a result of reading a couple of different books, I'd say Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers and his argument that he made about 10,000 hours to make a master of something that he'd kind of correlated with the Beals and a lot of other people who'd who'd achieve kind of outside, outsidely visible mastery to doing 10,000 hours of whatever thing they did me doing. And and that argument kind of led me to believe, well, surely stand-up comedians are the world's true masters of public speaking because nobody does it in conditions that are as, as challenging, where literally someone's having a terrible day and their happiness and is going to be dependent on them coming in, folding their arms, paying $8 to see a show and sitting there with a drink or two and be like, make me laugh, stranger, now and again every 12 to 15 seconds. Like, there's just, there's just nothing like that for, for pressure in the world of public speaking for the most part. And it was combined with the year of living biblically, which in A.J. A. Jacobs' book, where he actually went out and lived the rules of the Bible to the letter of the law, even though he was Jewish for a full year. And he ended up even stoning adulterers in, in New York Central Park at one stage. So he definitely committed to that one. But it was the idea of, all right, could you get short term, if you really commit to doing something like you know, what would happen? And that it was the experimental approach. And Tim Ferriss had a lot of that in the four hour work week and the four hour body and a lot of the books. He, a lot of the writing he was putting out was like, all right, well, who are the greatest people or who are the outliers doing a certain topic and how can we replicate what they're doing? And then that led me to the 80-20 principle, which I think was part of that. And then a few books like Moonwalking with Einstein, where somebody tried to to improve some aspect of their cognitive ability by doing something repeatedly using all those terms. So it was, it was a real mix of everything and down a very, very deep rabbit hole. Well, regardless of age, it's important to continue to try and challenge yourself by learning new skills. And a lot of people... Look, I get it. Life is hard and people that work eight to five jobs, you want to come home and just not to ha not worry about a whole lot else. But unfortunately, uh, that probably uh, dilapidates the uh, the person who chooses to make that decision. Even if you do work that eight to five job, find a hobby that maybe takes an hour or two a week to try and get better at something because you're challenging yourself and exiting that comfort zone. Yeah, obviously kids are really good at it because kids are so creative and they don't really have those inhibitions up to a certain point. But 
Uh, as adults, we we feel like that's that's child's play, but it's not. The reality is that as long as you are alive, you can try and learn something new. Now, it may not be something that turns into a career like you with stand-up comedy, but it is still still something that's good for the mo- body, mind, and spirit. Yeah, true. And I don't know if you'd call stand-up comedy a career. My parents certainly wouldn't, but I have stumbled into <laughs> it as a source of keeping me alive. Um, yeah, but it's very true. You you can definitely improve all by aspects of everything. And that's where I was turning to books for like, all right, give me the information to give it a try. And I think I wouldn't be motivated on a daily basis to improve any certain thing unless there's a real incentive to do it. So I moved to Colombia. I'm suddenly incentivized to get better at Spanish. You start dating a Spanish girl and she starts screaming at you at Spanish. Sooner or later, you want to figure out what she's saying because she looks angry or she looks happy <laughs> and you can't really differentiate between them. So I guess a lot of this learning and getting out of the comfort zone is born out of necessity. And for me, with public speaking, it was because a friend of mine has suffered a spinal cord injury and they wanted me to host a fundraiser for the event. And I just felt like, you know, compared to what he was going through, I couldn't be like, oh, I'm afraid of public speaking. I was like, hello, I have a crippling fear. And they're like, hello, I'm in a wheelchair. And you're like, oh, yes, bad choice of words. Uh, I better get over this fear. So it was, and, and I wish someone told me you'd never get over it because I probably wouldn't have tackled it, but you certainly are able to manage it. So I wasn't voluntarily getting out of my comfort zone. I definitely got dragged out of it. But this just seemed like the most logical path to get the best results in the shortest amount of time. He is stand-up comedian, best-selling author, and speaking coach David Nyhill. He is performing at Cap City Comedy Club this weekend, beginning tonight. One show tonight at 8 o'clock. Two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday as well. You can go to capcitycomedy.com for tickets and more info. Also, make sure to check out his website, davidnyhill.com, to learn more about David as an author and speaking coach. That book, if you're interested, is Do You Talk Funny? Seven Comedy Habits to Become a Better and Funnier Public Speaker. Coming up, one more segment with David Nyhill on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back with one more segment with stand-up comedian, best-selling author, and speaking coach David Nyhill. His website is davidnyhill.com. And as a stand-up comedian, you can actually see him hone that craft here in Austin this weekend, starting tonight at Cap City Comedy Club. One show tonight, 8 o'clock. Two shows tomorrow, two shows on Saturday at Cap City Comedy Club in the Domain. To get tickets, find out more info, go to capcitycomedy.com for David's Shelf Help Tour, stopping through Central Texas. Dave, we were just talking about you getting into stand-up comedy to overcome a fear of public speaking, and clearly you've gotten pretty good at that. Forbes calls you one of the best speaking coaches out there. You've got a best-selling book. Do you talk funny? Seven comedy habits to become a better and funnier public speaker. So was there an epiphanous moment for you that either helped show you the way or, or caused something to click inside of you that uh, that made the, that process a whole lot easier than it had been in the previous years? Yeah, sadly, I think it's just repetition and just being like, I'd watch a lot of TED Talks and watch a lot of speakers at business conferences and I'd be like, oh, they're all missing the thing that comedians learn the hard way. Like it's it's really every successful TED Talk, for example, like every one of the top 10 most popular TED Talks are funny and some of them are outlandishly funny. Like they would compete on a laugh per minute basis with some of the world's funniest movies. 
So you're like, all right, well, a key ingredient to a business talk on any level or any sparring talk is is humor. How do you replicate that consistently in, say, a business environment, which is way easier than comedy? So the book I wrote isn't like, hey, this will help you be funnier. It was like, this will help you be funnier solely in a business setting or solely in a speech setting or solely in a communication setting that is not stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is kind of its own thing. It was really just here's how to apply what stand-up comedians are doing and making look effortlessly to your audience who are literally so bored during their business conference that they've intentionally sat near the nearest power outlet thinking that they're going to not listen to any of the speakers whatsoever. Here's some attention-grabbing things and structures and techniques that a comedian would probably utilize if you let them loose on your talk. So the epiphany moment was oh, all the people that are experts in the world on communications don't know anything about the things that comedians know about. They know them very loosely, and then when they're forced to explain them, they just gloss it over. They just say something like, tell a joke, and you're like, well, that doesn't help anybody because then people grab canned jokes off the internet. Jokes have a high risk factor. Stories do not. So like a comedian would figure out how to tell a funny story or create a funny analogy in a business environment rather than taking the risk of delivering a joke because a joke is a risk factor. So it's just the epiphanies were along the lines of comedians are just so much better at this than the average person. Even the ones who are hailed as the best people in the world on communications, they don't know anything about it. And that was a big epiphany because I'm like, well, they know it's necessary, but they don't know how to explain it. Is silence one of those seven comedy habits? Because some of my favorite comedians, <laughs> I see them comfortable with not talking at times because it really causes the audience if their attention is starting to waver to focus back in on what's happening on stage well i think silence would be certainly one of them for me because most people sit there watching me going i wish he'd be silent soon (laughs) Uh, he he is using a lot of words but i'd say rather than silence it was more the timing Mm. and creating a structure that enforces you to leave space so it's nearly like If the surprise of something is that there's a cat in the box, you would flip that sentence structure to take the keyword, which is cat. We didn't know there's a cat in the box. I'm holding the box. What's in the box? There's a cat in the box. But if I say there's a cat in the box, the keyword is cat. So if that was a joke, cat's in the box, they would start laughing at the cat. So you just need to change that sentence structure to go in that box. There was a cat. And now you've created a natural full stop pause moment. You've identified the keyword in advance. So you've automatically created the silent space for them to react or not react at the key moment just through sentence structure. So I think it was just taking the key funny word and moving it to the end of a sentence is something you'll see comedians do over and over again to the point that you never go, oh, well, that's I'd never say. And in that box, there was a cat. It sounds Shakespearean. But when a comedian says it, it sounds totally fine. And that's because it creates the silence in the space for them to change the sentence structure to facilitate the pause. You're obviously a fantastic storyteller, David. What's the key to a good story? Me? I don't know about that. I think I've put enough people to sleep over the years that you'd have an online argument of people going, oh, I don't know about that statement. (laughs) But yeah, storytelling for me is a funny one. I just think tell it as it happened and tell it as he would tell it to a friend. And I think really... It's just structuring it so that the the most interesting bit is at the end and rootlessly editing it so that you cut out every single element that does not need to be in there. So if you mention someone by name, do they need to be in there? Are you going to share any more information about them? Where you were at the time? It was a Tuesday or Wednesday. Is that relevant? Who cares? Get it out of there. You're in a certain city. Does that impact the story? If not, who cares? Move it out of there. 
And I think that's in, in stand-up comedy, they're very good about rootlessly trimming down that story to its most impactful and then allowing themselves to grow it up again a bit now that they know what the key point is to the story. And they, when you see the really good people, I'm not one of them, I'll tell you that for free, but there's a lot of great friends I have when it comes to comedic storytelling that very consciously go out of their way to tell the story in the present tense. So they're not giving you, I was a walk, I walked and then I went and then I saw and then I sat and then I talked. It's I'm walking and they just bring you into the moment and that they're with. And it's a very simple change that makes a big, big difference for a real in the moment live storytelling. Use the present tense. Smart people tend to ask themselves questions and not just questions. They ask themselves a lot of questions, but typically there is one question on the forefront of that person's mind uh, for a period of time. Is there any one question that you find yourself asking more right now than all the others, David? Well, I appreciate you asking because that would imply that I might be a smart person, which I am definitely not. So I have no questions in my mind other than what am I eating next and where will I get? (laughs) Yeah, I wish it was, I wish it was more topical and interesting than that, but no, it just, stumble into things by necessity of, of learning. And I don't really have a long-term plan in place. I never really planned to live in America full-time, never planned to do stand-up comedy, never planned to tour stand-up comedy, never planned to do a show about books and comedy, and never planned to do a weekend in Cap City Comedy Club talking about books and comedy. So if I tried to put any little pad of logic behind any of the decisions I've taken out of general confusion or necessity over the last few years, I think I'd struggle to connect the dots. But here we are. All right, what's a place that you absolutely have to eat when you're here then, having spent four months in Austin previously? Oh, yeah, you always get dragged to Terry Black's, uh, which which I like a lot. It's a huge pile of meat. And then the, the other ones, I can't remember any of the names, but I could find them on the map, and they're all great. But yeah, Irish people, I don't think we count as big foodies. Like when your whole country runs out of food at some stage in life historically, you have a very low expectation of what you need to get in the tank uh, food-wise. So yeah, I'll never be a foodie, but I love when someone drags me somewhere. So Terry Black's is probably the go-to. Yeah, I heard Lenny Clark tell this joke at uh, the Mothership a few weeks ago, a country that ran out of food despite the fact that they were surrounded by ocean. Well, yeah, but he didn't have the insight to factor in the British there. So we we actually never ran out of food. We had our food stolen from us. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting topic if you really delve into the history of it because you have a lot of back and forth argument on how that actually happened. But Ireland never ran out of food. Ireland had a lot of potatoes that were shipped very knowingly by the British to Britain and then sent out to the colonies to feed their militaries as they were trying to take over other places that also were about to have less food. So you'll be pointing all arrows in one direction if you go down the history rabbit hole on that one. Oh, that's fascinating. So uh, the U.S. and Ireland have a, uh, a shared disdain for, for Great Britain based on what happened a couple hundred years ago. No, I think ours is slightly stronger. Um, but yeah, there's, I don't know if we have a disdain for them, but if they're playing in a sporting event, we are cheering for the other team. <laughs> oh, is that right? I didn't realize the rivalry ran that deep. Yes, they don't either. Where they're like, are you supporting us in the in the Rugby World Cup? And we're like, no, never. But what if you get eliminated? Then you we're your second team. No, anyone who plays against you. And that is, that is universally our approach to cheering for sports. Because we haven't qualified for the World Cup of Soccer since about 2002. So we have to cheer for whoever's playing against England these days. I know you don't like to think too deeply about much, although I'm, I'm skeptical of, uh, of you constantly cutting yourself down. I think you are a really smart guy, and that's one of the reasons why you are where you are right now, David. What do you think about what's happening with AI and just a seeming lack of guardrails going on with artificial intelligence and uh, the 
control or the say so that it may have in humanity going forward. Yeah, I no comment because I know absolutely nothing about it other than it's madness and it's interesting all at the same time. But I think I lived in Silicon Valley for quite a while. So I was I was there maybe for 15 years on and off in and around all things at the forefront of that discussion. So it's funny, it, it's tough to have a deep and informed opinion on it unless you've read a bunch of books on it and read every other one's opinion to the pros and the cons of it. And I haven't read any of them. So at the moment, it's just a tool for me to have a, a bit of fun with sometimes when I watch people using jokes word for word that have been created with AI and you're like, well, that's not going to work. But I mean, it's it's a cool tool. You're sitting on a plane and you're watching someone writing an essay using AI and they're like, wow, this whole thing just wrote that for you. I wish I had that when I was in school. I'll tell you that for free. But yeah, as for the wider impacts on it, honestly, I have not got a clue. Time will tell. Did you have a chance to watch the George Carlin or the AI generated George Carlin set? No, I didn't. I'm I'm not as big of a student of anything. I've watched George Carlin stuff because I like I love the the change in him and how outspoken he became and how he went from being like a kind of squeaky clean TV comic to just laying down the truth to people. And you know he has an Irish American background, so it's of extra interest. But I love the fact how you can watch his material thirty years later and you're like, oh, that is that is still extremely relevant. But I have not had a chance to watch that, but I will now that you mention it. Sign of a sharp comedian. Bill Hicks is another one of those guys. He's actually a Texas slash Houston slash Austin guy. Highly recommend you check him out. He is David Nyhill. Check out his work at davidnyhill.com. Comedian, best-selling author, speaking coach. You can also see him at Cap City Comedy Club this Thursday through Saturday. Go to capcitycomedy.com to grab yourself tickets for the Shelf Help Tour. That's right, comedy and book reading recs. One show Thursday, two shows Friday, two shows on Saturday. Capcitycomedy.com. David, thank you so much for the time today, man. Real pleasure. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for making me force think more deeply about everything I'm going to do today now. I'm like, did I think about this? Did I have a conscious plan for doing this? I'm like, damn it, I didn't have any. We do need AI after all. Coming up and where are we at in society? Guys are paying way too much money to nip it like Beckham. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Final segment of today's show. Before we get to where we at in society, I need to let you know about a friend of mine. Actually, friends of mine. It's the folks at Pest Wranglers. My buddy Steve started Pest Wranglers back in 2006. Since then, he has done a phenomenal job of taking care of those pest problems in homes and businesses across Central Texas. Doing so with a motto, effective, reliable, affordable. A secondary motto is we know customer service. That is evident from all the five-star ratings and reviews Pest Wranglers has gotten over the years on Google, Yelp, and elsewhere. And right now is a great time to get Pest Wranglers out to your place to get out in front of mosquito season. That's right. Pest Wranglers offers eco-friendly treatments that don't target bees or butterflies and is non-toxic to birds and mammals. That means your dog sniffing around the backyard. It's effective for up to a month. It kills mosquitoes that transmit all sorts of diseases, everything from dengue to yellow fever, Zika, and West Nile virus. It works against insecticide-resistant mosquitoes, too. 
kills adults and prohibits larvae from maturing. It is field validated with a bunch of published results in scientific journals. This is the stuff that they use in Africa for malaria control. Steve has done a lot of research on this to make sure that he has the best stuff available and stuff that's also not going to be harmful to you in the process. They also offer conventional mistreatment for a faster knockdown. It's good for one-time treatment for outdoor parties, pool parties, things like that. Effective for up to 21 days. There's no horrible odors for either treatment. And it's also very wallet friendly too. Usually under a hundred bucks a month. And as always, because they are confident in that customer service, you don't have to sign a contract. To find out more info or to sign yourself up for that service, go to pestwranglers.com. Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers, Pest Wranglers. And it is the final segment of today's show, which means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your regular look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will bring you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out. But sadly, today is not that day. Just going to have to read the headline from New York City. Men paying plastic surgeons $5,000 for nipples like David Beckham's. It's, quote, a growing trend. New York City surgeons are seeing a huge increase in men seeking to have their nipples reduced in size. And David Beckham is often the aesthetic inspiration. For those of you who don't know, because I did not know before this news story, if you want to call it news, the New York Post, and I'm seeing David Beckham's nipples for the first time, they are tiny. They're very small. They're symmetrical. Some are calling them almond-shaped. They go milk-dud-shaped. But symmetrical, small, almond-shaped nips that have guys forking out 5000 bucks to get the perfect nipples from Dr. Mark Everett, who's a plastic surgeon on Manhattan's Upper East Side. People want David Beckham nipples. Another doctor who has a practice in the same neighborhood says he's now performing the procedure once every two weeks, which is up from a handful of times in a year. It's definitely a growing trend, he declared. Also saying that he heard men saying that they wanted their nips to look just like Beckham's. For those who are wanting to do this but concerned about the high price, It is relatively quick to perform and the person who has the procedure done on them can actually go back to work the same day if they want to. So take that for what it's worth. The procedure involves the chest area being numbed by a local anesthetic before a surgeon cuts around the sides of the nipple to remove the skin and any extra breast tissue that may be formed. Some surgeons also partially cut the pointed area at the center of the nipple, known as the protrusion, to make it appear more pert, to make them glass cutters all the time. From this doctor, men are continuously becoming more and more conscious of how they dress and how they appear. If they're wearing something with a tight-fitting form, 
that shows the nipples more prominently, that might make them uncomfortable. They don't want the focus of what they're wearing, if they're wearing a form-fitting shirt, to be the nipple. So they're going for the smaller David Beckham-sized almond nipples. Levine says about 80% of patients seeking nipple reduction surgery are New York City locals, while the remainder are men from out of town who are way too embarrassed to ask for this procedure in the community for which they live, because if this is discovered, then you will be mocked roundly. It's not a common procedure, but it is one that is trending upwards from a final plastic surgeon in this article. I don't know. Maybe I lucked out. I'm not saying I have the best nipples on the planet. I'm also not working with, I don't know, large slices of pepperoni down there. They're just normal-sized nipples. They're not exceptionally small either. I didn't even know exceptionally small nipples were sought after by men, but apparently they are, at least New York City guys. Boy, that city has a way of breaking people's brains, doesn't it? Paying $5,000 could they get extra small nipples. Get a form-fitting shirt. Doesn't being in good shape kind of help neutralize that too if you're unhappy with your nipples? Some people are never going to be completely satisfied, I guess. Move on to Austin for this next story. Brought up a very similar item a few weeks ago, but another vegan bar can no longer afford to be fully vegan. That's right. It's a trend sweeping the country. Maybe not all these where we at stories are bad. Maybe it shows that we're starting to figure some things out. The previous story, I believe, was in Great Britain, and this story does... Come from Austin, East Austin, as a matter of fact. An East Austin vegan bar closed down its food truck this month in the process, making the business no longer vegan. The business's name is Sunny's Backyard, and it shuttered its namesake food truck at 3526 East 7th Street on Sunday, February 11th. From co-owner Merritt Vaugh, Sonny's food truck had to close because, quote, it was simply losing money. It had been for years, but we borrowed and borrowed and held on hope that it would turn the corner eventually. That didn't happen. And when it became the case of the truck probably taking the bar down with it, they decided that they needed to pivot. Once again, from this co-owner, the past three years has shown us that unfortunately, Fully plant-based food menus scare off a lot of people. No, it's not scares off a lot of people. It just isn't that appealing to a lot of people. Vegan items can be good as a portion, as a part of a meal. A lot of people, this doesn't make them scaredy cats, vegans. Come on. Let's get with it here. It makes them sensible people who understand what they would like to eat, what they would like to pay for, in order to feel satisfied at the end of the meal. And a menu that serves nothing but vegan items isn't going to do it for a lot of people. And a lot of vegan restaurants are wising up to this too because they've seen countless customers, and I mean countless customers, walk to their restaurant, maybe into their restaurant. I know this is a food truck here, but walk into a vegan restaurant, look at the menu and say, oh, it's vegan, and leave. You hear that about a thousand different times. It's a different sort of water torture. 
And eventually, if you wise up, you understand that there's maybe a responsible way to serve some meat items on that menu as well. Now, Sonny's is going to be hosting food pop-ups at their space through the end of South by Southwest, which kicks off here in a couple of weeks. And that is going to include non-vegan plus some vegan dishes. The food vendors who serve at Sonny's do have to have at least one vegan food option available. That's the right way to do things. The first pop-up was actually last Friday with the brand new Easy Burger. They were serving burgers with meat or vegan patties and options like the Juicy Lucy, which is stuffed with cheese, and the Oklahoma Onion, plus fries. Sometime in March, the South by Southwest food pop-up will be pizza-geared with Slice Society with its wood-fired pies. After the pop-up, Sonny's will have some permanent food trucks, which will also have to follow that at least one vegan dish rule. That includes the location of the growing New York-style pizzeria, Pedroso's Pizza, which will open sometime in early April. And the owners of Sonny's are open to having an actual vegan food truck on the premises as well. That just can't be the only option anymore. As even as any vegan food owner has had to come to terms with at some point in their business's existence, we can keep doing things in a manner which we think is more morally upright or whatever. Maybe it appeals to us, but we also have to understand that we have esoteric sensibilities when it comes to our food inclinations. That most people want a little bit of damn meat with their meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe get away with a side dish or a vegan offering for those who are dealing with dietary restrictions who, or who have lost their minds. But for most of everybody else, we don't see meat on the menu. That's it. Sayonara. We're out. We're going to find someplace it is. There's way too many good food places in Austin to settle on a vegan spot. And now Sonny's has wised up to that as well. All right, that is it for another edition of the Sports Day Plus. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back tomorrow at 6. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling.